All right, guys, if you can see on your handout, there are our 12th and final character quality we want to talk about this morning that, again, I believe is very foundational to us learning to man up is the subject of concern. And I think that this becomes kind of a final building block in regards to us seeking to build a stable, inspired course as men, understanding the value and the importance of exercising proper concern. And let me just say as a preface on the front end of this, when I say the word concern, I'm not talking about concern in the sense of worrying about something, being concerned about things, as much as what I mean by that is actually caring about people. In other words, having concern for human beings, having concern for the welfare of other people and their best interests. In that sense, the word concern, if you look up the definition of it, in that sense, it's defined as this. To regard someone as important, to care about them, willing to become involved in their life out of an interest for their welfare or best. So again, we're talking about the idea here of caring about people, thinking about their best interest, valuing people, and here's the key, over things and over pursuits and over endeavors or hobbies or achievements, having love for people, seeing people as important, and really making our highest priority in life relationships, other people around us, those God has connected to us, particularly, obviously, foremost, caring for people and investing in their lives, prioritizing people over earthly things in the material world, whether it's power, whether it's possessions, trying to accomplish some position, or even just some you know, pleasure we enjoy or whatever it may be, that that is the fundamental and foremost thing we should always care about most is human beings and to recognize that. And that's really what I want to kind of drive home in this session together. You notice the first verse in your handout there, 1 Peter 4, 8, says, Above all things have fervent love for one another. So again, key there being above all, and let me underscore that word, things. (laughs) Because Peter's even giving instructions there in regards to certain things and things we should be doing, but then he says, look, but above all things whether it's material things or even things that you do, and they may have value to them, not necessarily in and of themselves wrong, but above all things, have fervent, passionate, the ideas, fervent love for one another as a top priority before temporal things, having deep love for people, because to God, people matter most before everything else. You know, one quote that I found, and it's an anonymous quote, but it's excellent, statement, it says this. Let me read it to you. People were created to be loved. Things were created to be used. The reason the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. Isn't that a great statement? Let me read that again. People were created to be loved. Things were created to be used. The reason the world is in such chaos is because Things are being loved and people are being used. And look, if we were all to be honest as men, I think a common mistake for men is we can be prone to becoming too concerned about our pursuits, about possessions, about trying to acquire positions and and goals and accomplishments and our own ideas and our ambitions 
and our dreams and the things that excite us and that we enjoy again, whether it's some you know hobby or just thing that we enjoy to do, or whether it's just our our you know passion for our career or the thing that we're really heavily engaged in in some pursuit. And then we chase after those things with all our focus and all our effort, and we become too concerned about that and tragically not concerned enough about people in our lives. And we find, in a sense, our love for people and our care for people kind of being eclipsed by sort of just the rat race and the chase and the pursuit and all the things that we can come preoccupied. And particularly, listen, particularly those who we are most closely connected to, who God has assigned to us to care for. Obviously, our, our, our wives, our children, those who God closely connects to us, and we should have our foremost concern upon them. As a result, not putting appropriate time and energy into our marriages or into our parenting and spending time and giving quality attention to our children and so forth, and that lack of concern. And while, look, it, it's good to be driven, it's good to be diligent, you know, it's good to be hardworking and committed and all those things. And we've talked about a lot of those things in our time together. Some men, while hunting for worldly gain and conquering things and accumulating all their trophies, sadly have forsook their families in the process, have forsook valuing people, and they kind of lost their way regarding caring for people and, and men and kind of just being overly goal-driven, we can reduce life to success and climbing ladders, and we can start to neglect caring about people, and particularly those closest to us in our lives. And we can then kind of start to begin to get a little callous and cold-hearted. We become very mechanical and functional, and we're pushing the buttons, and we're pulling the levers, and we're like the mule pulling the thousand-pound sled behind us and, and plowing the ground and accomplishing lots of great things, and the world would probably you know, applaud us with how well we do and how hard we work and how diligent we are and, and measuring all those things, but sometimes in the process, so being so concerned with achievements and tasks and pursuits, we can start to mistreat people and we can start to overlook those who are important in our lives and fail to consider them and neglect considering the impact of what we're doing and what it's having upon their lives. And that's the thing that we have to pay attention to and we have to be careful with. So we don't view people as a resource that we utilize to help us acquire the things that we're trying to go after. And, and we, can, we can do that as men. Men can do that with their wives where they just begin to almost relate to their wife as she is just a resource to take care of A and B and C to empower me because I got to go do all these things. And look, I'm not saying, again, in any way I'm trying to counter what I've said prior as far as being hard work or sacrificial and, and diligent, but again, we want to be very careful that in the midst of all those things, and, and look, I can tell you very candidly, it's the reason why I purposely put this lesson at the end, because to me, you know, if everything else got forgotten and we were just really concerned about people and loved and cared about people very strongly, we probably, because love's supposed to be other-centered, would do the majority of all the other stuff, right? We'd be very committed because of love. We'd be very good decision-makers because of great love, and we want to make sure we make good decisions. And all the other stuff would kind of fall into place. So I think this is very important. We have to be very, very careful that we don't start to take healthy relationships and view them as non-essential or let them become unimportant and view people like they're disposable or replaceable. 
And that is a common thing that can happen oftentimes, and I've seen, and maybe you have as well, I've seen many men do this over the years, and even guys within the church, and it can become a very damaging, damaging thing, willing to perhaps sacrifice people or sacrifice relationships to just obtain what they're chasing. And look, that we read here in 2 Timothy 4.10, in your notes there, was one of the things that happened, a man named Demas who had served with Paul for a season and he was partnering with Paul in ministry and seems to have had a healthy relationship. But then look what Paul says, 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. So Paul describes how he forsook the relationship and Paul specifically says what happened was it was his love and passion that overtook him for the things of the world, just the present world system. And somehow, we don't get all the details, but falling in love with the present world system, all it had to offer, the lure of it, the attraction of it, the opportunities within it, that's what led Demas to forsaking a very valuable relationship in his life and abandon his commitments to Paul and his responsibilities to pursue self-fulfillment and worldly things. It's often been said the most important things are not things. And, and that's one of the things we want to always remember as guys. The most important things are not things. And our American culture doesn't teach us that, but God's word is very, very clear in regards to it. 1 Timothy 6, I have it in your notes there. This is a great passage of just, again, caution and how to balance out valuing people and what's important versus what's not important. Look what he says, 1 Timothy 6 there in your notes. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So again, the world has a measure, right? How do you know when you're, when you're really gaining, man? How do you know when you're getting ahead, son? How do you know when you're, you're, you're somebody who is on a track where you are now gaining ground, you're doing good as a husband, you're doing good as a dad, you're doing good as a man? The, the Bible says you know that you are making great gain when you're living godly and you're content with that. You're content with living for God and serving God and you're finding most of your fulfillment and contentment in just living for God. And then he goes on to add to this by saying, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out, right? I've, I've watched, I haven't done it. Let me make a clear disclaimer since this goes on YouTube. I've watched my wife push out three children. <laughs> she did all the work. I did what encouraging I could. But I can tell you this, when all three of my daughters came out of the womb they didn't come out with a purse. They didn't come out with a bank account. They didn't even come out with their first dress on. They came out with absolutely nothing. They contributed nothing. In fact, everything predominantly that they gained was all by their mother and I helping them acquire to some degree until they became independent. But the Bible is very clear. Look, we start life with absolutely nothing. And when people are being put into the ground, when their life comes to a close, they don't depart with anything either. So we begin life with nothing material and physical. We end life with nothing material and physical. And so God's just bringing to our attention, that's how we start, that's how we finish. We should have a very loose hand and not become over-fixated on all the things and the stuff in our life that often can eclipse what really matters and is important. He says, having food and clothing, again, basic necessities, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which, look what he says, drown men. 
in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Now, let me just make a disclaimer. In that first chapter, or that, for that same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, Paul's addressing and gives instructions in the church in the later verses to those who are rich within the church. God doesn't demonize wealth. There's nothing wrong at all with being endowed with wealth. You know, again, people can't exercise the biblical gift spiritually of giving if they don't have anything to give, right? So some people literally have a spiritual gift of giving, seeing resources as a tool. God's endowed them. They've been able to be more affluent. God's helped them to create or generate wealth. And they use their wealth as a way to serve the Lord and to be able to empower things to happen. So again, there's nothing at all wrong. One can be very godly and have wealth, just like one can be very godly and be poor. One is not more spiritual than the other, nor is one more wrong than the other. What God is just saying is that there's a caution in being able to become too infatuated with wealth. And listen, that can be a challenge both for the person already rich who just wants to be more rich, right? It wasn't Rockefeller, I believe they asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more, right? So, so it can be a struggle for the wealthy person to become greedy and always want more or always try and keep or retain more. But the truth of the matter is a love of money and a desire to be rich can also be a struggle for someone who maybe God's called to live a more modest life. And maybe they're not going to be someone who's going to be a high-earning career person, but they're always desiring more money in an unhealthy way, or maybe too prematurely, they're too focused on wanting to be at the next level financially, their next level materially, and so in the meantime, they're leaving their family in the fumes behind them, and they're trying to climb ladders instead of letting life happen at a pace and gradually accruing a standard of living and sticking it out at a job, and then you get to a next standard of living. And, and, and that can be a challenge to the poorest person or to the wealthier person, and he says here that drive to become more wealthy can become a snare. It can lead to foolish and harmful desires that can drown a man and destroy his life. And that the love of money, again, not money, money's just a tool, but the love of it can become a root to all types of evil. He says, even causing some to stray from the faith and pierce themselves through with many, many sorrows. And I'm sure we all know stories, if not some degree, maybe something in our own life or people we know who have great sorrows and regrets. And somehow some of that was attached to just chasing more greenbacks. Uh, and how that led in some way maybe to great sorrow in their life. You know, men, though hardworking, can simply just kind of at times, if we're not careful, be prone to ignoring and neglecting people, and particularly even ignoring and neglecting our wives and our children. Again, you notice the verse I put in your notes there, Colossians 3.19, one of the marriage verses, Paul says there, husbands are to love their wives and not be, look what he adds, harsh with them. The idea is cruel not sensitive, not tender-hearted, not understanding. So again, calling us to love our wives sacrificially, that agape love, but cautioning us in the midst of that, be careful you don't start to become harsh with your wife. Uh, paying attention to that again, that we're not mistreating our wives in the midst of relating to her. First Samuel chapter 3, you can read the chapter, it gives more clarity, but particularly around verse 13, it, it indicates there how Eli was a negligent and an absentee father with his children. 
And again, here was this man who was in ministry, had a position of ministry, and his own two sons were complete reprobates. And what made it even worse is he wasn't even doing anything about it. He wasn't disciplining his children. He wasn't raising his children. He wasn't in, and, and he had sons who, in a sense, were completely off the rails. And here he was holding a ministry position, and his family was an absolute train wreck to a degree. And God's word is just kind of holding this out as an example of that he, in a sense, you know, had, in a sense, ministry things and, again, doing godly things. But yet, meantime, he was somehow negligent. He wasn't really investing, and his, and his children seemed to have really gotten unhealthy as two sons in the midst of that story. Jesus warned of the danger of becoming cold-hearted by simply saying, regarding the last times, Matthew 24, because lawlessness will abound, describing the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And again, that word love there, in the Greek, it's agape. It's referring to not just the way people love in the world superficially, but the love of God. So this is something that's a caution to God's people, that the agape love of God can start to grow hold in our lives because of the world that we live in that becomes just lawless and rather harsh. So again, God's word commands us as men and as women, I mean, all of us for that matter, that we're not to let ourselves become hard-hearted or cold-hearted, uncaring in any way, but really it, it conveys the opposite. And when we look at Jesus, who was the perfect man, he is the representation of what the perfect man is to be like. And we read passages about the life of our Lord. Matthew 9, 36 tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked at the sheep, remember, who didn't have a shepherd, who were suffering. Again, Jesus' heart was compassionately stirred when he saw people who needed care, who weren't being attended to, who weren't being loved. In Luke 19, you see Jesus there weeping over the broken condition of the city of Jerusalem. And our Lord's life was focused not on amassing achievements or possessions, but really foremost on serving people as his top priority. I think a great example of that, too, is I put in your notes there, Nehemiah chapter 1, as that book opens up there, and certainly a great book study. And Nehemiah, if you've never explored it from that perspective, is a great book on biblical leadership and just seeing how God orchestrates through Nehemiah a, a wonderful work uh, and the heart he had and the way he made decisions. But the book opens by telling us that it came to pass in the month of Chislev, uh, he says, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, Hanani, now follow the flow of this, one of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there and are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, briefly, let me just draw to your attention here again what happens. This is after the captivity comes to a close. God's people are permitted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the city that was left in ruins and destruction, a very small remnant Though given the opportunity to embrace God's call, a, only a very small remnant chose to give up the Babylonian lifestyle and culture 
and go back to Jerusalem, which was in rubbles and was going to take a whole lot of uh, hard work. It was just totally, you know, ravished the land. So they go back, and this is describing how now word travels to, to Nehemiah. He says, one of my relatives came from there, and it says that when they, that relative came, that he asked, how are the people doing there? It says that he inquired and asked concerning the Jews who had escaped, who survived the captivity. The idea is concerning Jerusalem and how things were going. The thing I want to point out to your attention here, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. He's got a very busy, very important job. He's, he's, he's in a, a government position, if you would. He's got a very comfortable lifestyle, and, and he, he cares enough to ask, hey, how are things going there in Jerusalem? And, and to me, this is such a great lesson because, you know what, it shows me here's this very busy man, someone who has lots of things on his plate, but he cared enough to say, how are things going? How are you guys doing? And to me, that displays such a beautiful heart of care and concern that he had a compassion and concern for the struggles of people and that he took time to even ask. You know, guys, one of the greatest things we can do sometimes just to show care and concern is sometimes just to slow down enough to actually say to another brother, to say to our wife, to say to one of our children, to, to say to somebody else in the church, hey, how are you doing? And particularly if we know that they're in the midst of a hardship or a challenge, just to have enough care and concern to let them know that we do care and that we're concerned about how they're doing and that we just were willing to you know, hear them out or to inquire to show them that they're loved and cared about. And I think Nehemiah is just a, a beautiful example. And it's out of asking that question that God births a whole work of his spirit. All he did is just say, how are things going? And when he heard how bad things were, that's what precipitated his heart to say, I've got to do something about this. I, I've got to do something. I've got to help in some way. And that became really the thing that was the inception, the seedbed for really the wonderful work of God that happened was he just asked how things were going. God's word also calls us to have a tender and a sensitive heart. I put two verses in your notes there, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3, 8. They both imply that, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving even as God and Christ forgave you. And then Peter, just like Paul, under the Spirit, encourages the same thing. Finally, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, loving as brothers, being tender-hearted, and being courteous. And again, I like the picture there, being tender-hearted. A tender heart is something that's sensitive. Again, we want to make sure our hearts don't become overly callous, that we keep a tender heart that things matter to us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those passages, the front end of it, everybody knows the love is patient, love is kind, so on and so forth. We can, can quote that. But what people usually miss in 1 Corinthians 13 is the most important part, not the beautiful poetic part, but the basis of it, which is the first three verses, which basically is the place where God is conveying achievements and accomplishments mean nothing if we don't have love in our hearts. Just like spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts really mean nothing if they're not stemming from love being in the heart. If all we want to do is look spiritual in a meeting and we really don't have love in our heart for the reason we want to exercise a gifting to help people, then the Bible says, that, well, that was totally vain. Really, you just love yourself because you wanted to look spiritual in the setting of the church. 
and you wanted to have your opportunity to speak your word or say your thing or do your dance or whatever it may be, you know, just to, to kind of express yourself and God saying, but that wasn't very loving to everyone else, so that was a waste of time. And that he even says, pursue love and then desire spiritual gifts. So look what he says, 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. In other words, you have the most greatest oratory skill. You can speak where someone would say, man, that guy, he's, I mean, he speaks like a professional orator, or that person sings like an angel. Man, they are, I mean, their power to be able to communicate is so incredible. And he says, if we speak incredibly, but have not love, he says, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. A sounding brass or a clanging cymbal implies something that's incredibly obnoxious. And what's God saying? We can say everything right. We can be an excellent communicator. But if at the source of our heart behind our words is not genuine love, it will somehow come across still in a way that it will be obnoxious to the listener. It, it will come across in a way that's offensive. We could say everything accurate, but if the tone of our words or the heart behind our words, again, whether we're speaking in our job place to a fellow employee or to someone who we supervise or to our own wives trying to offer direction or guidance to our children, and if love's not stemming from our hearts, it may be that everything I said was right, but if there's no love in my heart, I just come across like somebody who's clashing symbols on the side of someone's head and it doesn't really hold a whole lot of value. And again, God's reminding of this value of love being so important. And he then goes on to say, though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, again, great spiritual experiences, but I don't have love, then he says, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, there he's talking about we can make the greatest sacrifices, right? Give our body to be burned, do great social works, give away tons of, of money, you know, all types of, you know, helpful things. But he says, if we're doing all those things and it's just mechanical labor, we're just pushing the buttons and pulling the levers and love's not at work in our heart, then he says, it, it's nothing, it means nothing to God, and it really has no ultimate value because love is missing. And, and let's just be very candid as we think about that. You really don't have to have love in your heart to do the right things, right? I can, and I can display that. I'm sure a good percent of you may not necessarily love your job, but you perform your duties, right? So, so we can go through duties, and we can do right things, and really have no love in our heart. We're just going through the duty. And in the same way of every sphere of life, we want to be really careful, God's cautioning, be careful that you don't just mechanically go through the duties of life and relationships, and, and you really don't love people, and love's missing from your heart. If that's something that is there, many, many, many years ago, God convicted me about that, even in ministry, because you can do ministry and not love people. You can do all the right things and habitually keep all the practices going, but not really care about people. And that's something, again, we want to be very, very cautious of. Love is something that God wants at the center of what we're doing. And love is something that's seen, and it's displayed, of course, through actions and sacrifices and doing things to serve people out of personal cost. The next verses I put in your notes kind of convey that idea. First John 3, 16 to 18, many of us know this passage. We know love in this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives 
for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, sees a brother or sister, referring to the family of God, in need, but then you don't have pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Again, we don't want to say the right things, not to say that love can't be expressed verbally, but really love fundamentally isn't something that's expressed verbally, it's something that's displayed through actions, through sacrificial efforts, through bearing a cost to bless others, to care for them. And of course, I put in your notes there the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of us know that, and that's a perfect illustration of that, right? Where the, the, the priest, as well as the you know, Levite men who were religious leaders, walk by, see a person struggling, and they do absolutely nothing. And whatever their reasonings were, I don't know. It could have been, listen, I, I apologize. I'm, I got to get to the synagogue meeting. I don't have time for you and your problems. Uh, it could have been whatever, just that they were going through the motions mechanically and their hearts had become callous. Whatever the case, they neglected the opportunity to care for someone, right? The man was there on the side of the road, beaten up, attacked, wounded. He needed somebody to just love him. And he wasn't in, in a real attractive condition. But then, of course, the Samaritan comes and actually is stirred with compassion and care and goes over and helps and does what he can to display care and concern, and God esteems that and says, do that. Go and do likewise. That's the one who actually cared about his neighbor, and he holds that up as the ideal for us. You know, as men, we should never, ever think, guys, that it's not masculine to express love and care. When, again, we think about Jesus, our Lord clearly displayed love and care and concern for people. He was incredibly compassionate. When I read the Gospels, I never see Jesus being too busy for a person. I never see Jesus brushing people off. I never see Jesus all about the work and even the ministry and not caring about individuals. I see Jesus saying some of the most profound things he said to individuals, not teaching big groups of people. Again, we love John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, have everlasting life. That was a conversation. That wasn't a sermon. That was a one-on-one -on -one conversation that Jesus took time at night, maybe the late hours of the night, to care enough about a person in dialogue and think of the value, the gem that rolled off of his lips <laughs> that saved some of our souls. With a person, the next chapter, John 4, he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the one that nobody else wanted to interact with. Jesus is willing to interact and show care and compassion in a very dignified way, speaking to this woman. And again, what I love about Jesus is that Jesus put emphasis upon people. There was genuine love. You know, you look at Jesus's life in the Gospels, he took time for children. Right? Remember when no one else wanted to take time for the children? All the children were being brought to him. They wanted their children to get blessed. And the disciples' mentality was, listen, we're running a campaign here. He's not kissing babies. Get out of here. We're trying to win friends and influence people and build the following. I mean, they just wanted to plow forward. They were kind of annoyed by it. And what did Jesus do? Jesus stopped the whole procession of ministry. And he said, let the little children come to me. For as such is the kingdom of God. And he took little kids up into his arms and, and, and it says, bless them and spent time with them. And, and I love this beautiful picture of our Lord. I mean, would you agree Jesus was probably pretty busy, had a lot to do, but he took time to, you know, get on the ground and crawl on his knees with a little kid and pat him on the head and pray for them and just, you know, to show that they val were valuable and they mattered. 
And I believe it was either Spurgeon or Moody was asked at one point when he came home from a campaign meeting the next morning at breakfast, his uh, wife said to him, so how did it go last night? And he said, wonderful, two and a half converts. And she was, two and a half converts? And he said, and she said, oh, oh, I get it, two adults and, 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 and a little child. He said, no, 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 my dear. He said, two children and one adult. The adult only has half their life to live for Christ. What a perspective. Again, valuing everyone, children and adults. Children had nothing maybe to contribute of advantage or benefit, but Jesus just valued people, and he cared about them. And I love how he just took time for little children. Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted. You see that all throughout the Gospels. He never was frustrated by an interruption. People would interfere with what he was doing. He would take time, and then he would just go back and do what it took to finish doing whatever he would do. We see Jesus weeping at funerals, having close relationships, Peter, James, John, the others, even some of the women that followed him, Jesus embracing people. So again, we can be guys masculine and still be tender. We can be manly and masculine and still be affectionate and caring. Don't buy in to that lie. And I'll show you one of the greatest biblical examples of that, David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan. Look at the life of David and Jonathan and just think who they were. David and Jonathan were combat-hardened ancient warriors. I mean, these guys were like the Navy SEALs, the, you know, the, the Rambos of the Old Testament in a day when they were fighting in warfare, not shooting guns from afar, but we're talking swords, spears, hand-to-hand -hand combat clubs, bloody battles. I mean, th these guys probably could kill men with their bare hands and probably had done it and seen a whole lot of it around them. So these were masculine, tough, battle-hardened men, both David and Jonathan, and yet simultaneously they were very tender, they were very compassionate. They were very caring. And they themselves are who the Bible holds up with this beautiful example of this wonderful bond of friendship that these two men had for one another. The Bible holds those two men up as our example of this unique camaraderie and friendship. First Samuel 18 says, as soon as they had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul and took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So take notice, these battle-hardened, tough dudes had a super loving, close relationship as two brothers where they really cared about one another and were involved in each other's lives and, and had a camaraderie that went deep into the emotions of how much they really cared about one another to the point where it's expressed in the scene where it says Jonathan and David make this commitment to kind of care for one another. And the last verse there in 1 Samuel 18 says, Jonathan strips himself of the robe and gives it to David together with all of his armor. Do you see what Jonathan's doing there? Who was Jonathan? He was the son of who? King Saul. In that day, from a monarchy perspective, the son should be inheriting the throne. And Jonathan, in that moment, is saying, David, you know what? I know I'm next in line for the throne, the way things work culturally. But David, it is very evident to me that you are called by God to be the next king of Israel. So therefore, you know what, David? I love you 
more than I love positions or power. I want God's will, and I want your welfare foremost. So he makes this display of loving sacrifice. He takes off his robe and his armor as the prince, and he says, you should wear this because you're the right man. And I love the picture there because, again, it shows that these men cared more about God's will and relationship and way less about positions and titles and power and accomplishments. And in a sense here, Jonathan is saying, you're the right one. And he puts, again, people foremost and other things that often we make the mistake with secondary. Romans 12.10, it's in your notes there, says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And let me just say, men who are secure in their masculinity, guys, when we're secure in our masculinity, understand authentic manhood, you can demonstrate love for people, you can demonstrate care for people if you are secure in your manhood. Sometimes if we're struggling with that, it could be an indication that that's the problem. It could be that I'm insecure in my own masculinity, so therefore I need to project this image sometimes of toughness or sternness or macho-ness, and it's almost as if I got to display that. And part of that could just be if you were secure in that, you, you could just be caring and loving and affectionate. And you don't have to keep an image up because you're not concerned about an image. You're concerned about people. And, and you're certain and you're secure in your masculinity. Let me conclude by saying this. And please hear me in my last two minutes here in regards to something that I think is very, very vital. And I'm going to conclude our entire 12 sessions saying this. And, and it connects to what we're talking about this morning. Always Always, always remember, things can be replaced. Things can be replaced. Always, always, always remember. Opportunities can even be forsaken. And ultimately, a new opportunity or a better opportunity can still arise down the road in the future. But ruined relationships are not always able to be regained. So please take that to heart. Things can be replaced, opportunities can arise again, but ruined relationships, sometimes they're restored, but they may not always be able to be restored. My point is guard relationships. Cherish the people foremost that God has put in your life. Hold them at the highest value. Prioritize people. And may your driving decisions sometimes be, you know what? I could pursue that position. I could pursue that possession. I could pursue this passion, whatever, this pleasure. But I'm never, ever going to leave on the altar my wife or my children or sacrifice relationship with people because real men, like we've talked about, can be committed and diligent and hardworking and sacrificial and good decision makers and great leaders, but the reason they do it is because they ultimately love and care about people, and it's their concern for people that drives and fuels all those other things that we've talked about the 12 sessions together. May God pour his love into our hearts, the Bible tells us, Romans 5, by the Holy Spirit, because that's where it comes from. And let me just say, guys, if you sense in any way in your heart that this is deficient or a struggle or something that God's ministering to you about, as, as I at one time really came to a spot where God really put his hand very heavily upon my heart in regards to this many, many years ago, I encourage you strongly, again, God pours his love into our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and to just get before God and to say, God, man, I am blowing it in this area. Lord, I, I can go through all the motions. I am mechanical. I can grind it out. I can pull the sled. But Lord, I need to love people. And I just feel like I've been failing in that area. And I tell you this, you pray a prayer like that, God will flood your heart with love for people. That is a prayer that he will absolutely answer by his grace and power. Let's stand together, guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all these men. Lord, thank you for their hearts, their willingness to be here this morning. Lord, their willingness to be here at different stages and seasons throughout this past year, Lord. Those who've watched the videos, Lord, as well online, we're just grateful that we've been able to talk about these things and go through them together as a group of brothers. Pray, Lord, that we could continue to be David and Jonathan's in each other's lives, that even as uh, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God, Lord, that we could continue to do that as a group of men for one another. And Lord, we just do ask humbly that you would pour your love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that above all else, we would be men who have great love for our wives and our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family members, and everyone around us, Lord, that out of that overflow of love in our heart, Lord, we would be everything else that you intend for us to be. And we admit, Lord, it's a struggle for us. And so we ask particularly as men, Lord, give us mercy and give us help in regards to these things. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these times together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, I love you guys. Thank you so much for uh, participating. It's been a fun journey for me as well as for you.